In the last video, I mentioned that Eva Watts Russell was sort of using 4AD's stable of artists as a hit factory. He was trying to promote and nurture a number of different internal relationships. What I didn't broach last time because it's just too big of a subject is that 4AD ended up releasing probably the most important single next to Blue Monday of the 1980s. I also mentioned in the last video how a lot of people viewed Ultra Vivid Scene as a kind of opportunistic way for 4AD to get a Jesus and Mary chain on their label. Well, Ultra Vivid Scene wasn't the first time Evo had tried to get his own Jesus and Mary chain. The first time he tried to get his own Jesus and Mary chain was A.R. Kane. A.R. Kane were two sort of well-to-do East Londoners, um, Alex Ayuli and Rudy Tambala. They were very successful at their day jobs at a time when, you know, um, black men in England were not having the easiest time. It was still very Thatcher and, you know, 86, they really were not completely turning the corner on the horrendous, you know, economic recession that had been going on. The two of them formed this band A.R. Kane sort of fed up with, you know, low-level urban professional life. Their first 12-inch was called When You're Sad. This was released on One Little Indian. Now, one, it was the second 12-inch, I think, One Little Indian ever released. It, it's so funny to me how nobody's heard this record. And they go back and all they want to talk about is how A.R. Kane were completely, you know, forerunning dream pop, post-rock genius. And it, it just, you know, yeah, they made some really remarkable records that were pretty original. Well, so did Basehead, but nobody talks about Basehead anymore. Eva Watts Russell, very quickly off this 112-inch, signs um, A.R. Kane and has them put out a single called Lolita. Lolita wasn't a huge hit by any stretch. But, you know, they're trying to talk to Eva Watts Russell about what we're going to do next. And what they want to do is work with Adrian Sherwood. At that time, in the mid-80s, Adrian Sherwood is most famous for engineering the comeback album for Lee Scratch Perry. Dub reggae had been a huge part of the growth out of punk into post-punk in the early 80s and bands like Steel Pulse were, were very, very important. <laughs> 
not necessarily in terms of racial politics, partially, sure, but they were hugely important in showing how broad pop music could be in terms of what it spoke to. And so to have someone like Lee Scratch Perry have this kind of resurgent moment was a big deal. And A.R. Kane wanted to work with Sherwood as a result of that. So they said to Evo, look, we did a 12-inch with you. When we go to do our album here, we want to do it with Adrian Sherwood as a producer. I don't know if... Um, Evo Watts Russell didn't have the relationships or the finances to make that happen, but ultimately he didn't. So the best he could offer was to get them to go into the studio with his kind of, you know, hip electro band, Colorbox. And again, he's thinking within the house. He puts them in there with John Fryer, who's his uh, kind of brother-in-arms with this mortal coil. Because all along, one of the, the backgrounds of 4AD is that he's a musician too. Evo's been doing his own music using, again, this stable of artists as this mortal coil. He very famously did a cover of Tim Buckley's song to the siren with Elizabeth Fraser singing. I did chief talent of a producer is arriving at consensus. Helping everyone in the room arrive at a consensus that is agreeable and allows them to move on and feel a sense of accomplishment. John Fryer was not able to bridge the personalities in Colorbox and A.R. Kane, and so they basically did not work together at all. The result of these sessions was two songs, one by Colorbox and one by A.R. Kane. And they took the two songs and gave them to one another to basically fuck with and then released it. Pump up the volume, pump up the volume, pump up the volume, dance, dance. In 1987, there's two very new things happening in pop music. One is kind of self-confident, aggressive hip-hop. This is before gangster rap. This is about hip-hop that speaks to itself, that doesn't care about crossover, that is about, you know, quote-unquote, keeping it real. Street-level music that goes back to the way it was when it started, with Grandmaster Flash, Melly Mel, and Curtis Blow, and these people who were rapping about their lives. For the people that pay the hard-earned money, they come into the discotheques. I don't think it's totally fair, really, to just start the record from the beginning and then wait for it to end and mix the next record in. I mean, you're not doing no work. I mean, if you're gonna go, if you're gonna do work, do work. You don't need MC Hammer or Vanilla Ice to tell you that hip hop is sort of, you know, falling off when Run the MC are doing Walk This Way. Yeah, that was fresh and innovative and it was a really big deal. But at the same time, there were a lot of people who were living in pretty rough circumstances who looked at that like, you know, this isn't speaking to me anymore. Run DMC aren't speaking to me anymore. I'm happy that they're making money. I'm not going to call them sellouts, but who's going to speak for me? Pump up the volume, dance with the speaker till you hear it blow. Then plug in a headphone, cause here it go. It's a full letter word when it's heard to control your body to dance. So, dot text the tempo like a red alert. 
and they based Pump Up the Volume around I Know You Got Soul from Payton Full. A.R. Kane were over in the studio doing whatever they were doing. Just this big, blurry, distorted, wailing um, track called Anatina. I say this in probably every video, but Anatina is way up there, like top 10 for me all time. It is a song that absolutely blew my fucking mind. When I was a kid and, and everybody heard Pump Up the Volume, I remember everybody playing Anatina and being like, what the fuck is this? This is fucking weird. This sucks. But I mean, I never took that 45 off the fucking turntable once I bought it. I just left it on B. <laughs> The importance of Pump Up the Volume is not just in how it stands up even today, you know, 25 years later, but in how it changed the public attitude toward and the pop music understanding of sampling. Earlier in the year, a really obscure record had hit the scene. It was called Say Kids, What Time Is It? And it was by some duo called Cold Cut. Say Kids What Time Is It was one of the first singles to take sampling and totally remove irony or kitsch from it. It was trying to make a song out of other songs with no apologies. The way I look at sampling, historically, you have three schools of thought behind sampling. The first is kind of the Grandmaster Flash quick mix technique, where you have two turntables and a mixer in the middle, and you use the fader lever to ensure that you're permanently looping and resetting a drum break. You could also do this with cassette, although you needed probably a relatively high-end cassette player at that time to do it, but if you had a quick action pause button on a cassette deck, you could pretty accurately dub loops of the same drum beat. What some really enterprising and bright guys figured out is that you could just take the stretch of tape that contained the drum beat, tape it together, wrap it around the cassette shell, and that cassette would just play forever. So that's sort of school one. School one is like finding a way to keep the loop going. Because that in itself was a very novel enterprise at that time. School two is the idea of synthetically recreating using digital waveforms, let's say, or even analog polysynths, to recreate the appearance sonically of a violin or a horn. Synthesizers were refining themselves a lot, and they sort of 
peaked around the time that sampling became good enough that, that synthesizing sounds became obsolete. Well, what happened after these two schools were sort of petering out is that sampling technology became affordable. In the very early 80s, there were only really two records that were made using um, sampling as we think about it today. Kate Bush is Never Forever. And Peter Gabriel's Security. Particularly the single Shock the Monkey, which is all CMI. The Fairlight CMI computer music instrument was an enormous behemoth of old school technology. It's a big green screen monitor, a huge like 90 pound keyboard, and this big box where the brain resides. And it had an on-screen uh, pagination methodology called Page R, which is like the first ever example of a music GUI. Fairlight CMI did something so basic, it's like comical today, but back then it was ridiculously advanced. And what it did was it took you took a sample and the sample became middle C and then every key out from there pitched it up or down. This is the first sampling keyboard that ever existed and it cost thirty thousand dollars in nineteen eighty, which is eighty thousand dollars today. And then the biggest beneficiary of this early on is the art of noise. Now, the Art of Noise is a band started by a hugely famous producer, Trevor Horn, a hugely famous and obnoxious music writer, Paul Morley, a classically trained composer in Ann Dudley, and two of the main Fairlight CMI programmers, Gary Langan and J.J. Jezelek. Jezelek and Langan are studio engineers under Trevor Horn, while Yes is working on 90125. <laughs> People are beyond well connected. So they're screwing around the studio with leftover tracks from Yes's big album, 90125. They decide they have enough material to put out their own record. So they start their own label, ZTT, and they put out an EP called Into Battle with the Art of Noise. This contains already off the top two of the best songs they're ever remembered for Beatbox. <laughs> moments in love. These early records by The Art of Noise, Kate Bush and Peter Gabriel point up a way that you can start to create new music with sampling and it can be real music. It doesn't just have to be about the act of sampling and how novel and absurd that is and all the philosophical bullshit that Art of Noise draped their music in. Chuck that out. This idea of sampling as commentary and that commentary being legitimate new music, nobody had ever done it. What happens by about 83 is that digital technology starts to become affordable. 
And once that happens, kind of all bets are off. The, the whole notion of sampling becomes much less exclusive, and suddenly anybody can sample. And that means anybody can treat sampling any way they want. Say Kids What Time Is It is, the, is really the groundbreaking single that says to the world, this is real music, even though it's made out of other music. Pump Up the Volume is sort of the perfection of that first you know, notion of editorial recombination. 4AD had absolutely no reputation as a dance label. They were a goth label, and they did the absolute best thing they could have done. They pressed up 500 white label 12 inches. They already knew everybody because they were 4AD and they were pretty successful by 87. And they made sure they got in the hands of the most successful, most influential DJs in England at the time. By the time Pump Up the Volume was even available for purchase, there was so much buzz that it debuted at number 35 in England. No video, no nothing. People were running to the shops to buy this record. By the time 4th and Broadway got it in America, it was already getting played on import all over New York. It was by far the freshest club house hit that had been made to that point. It completely took club music and house music to a totally different level in terms of how intensely and intricately you could layer samples and still come out with something that you could dance to.